0: identity from your creator. And that is what is going on in culture. They're trying to discover who they are apart from the one who designed them and made them. Welcome to Refuge Podcast, a weekly Bible study for young adults at Calvary Chapel, San Juan Capistrano. So I thought tonight we'd just do one psalm. That was a lot of information last week. We went through the topics of love, um, anger, and justice, looking at how God can be both loving and just at the same time, um, and how those uniquely link up within the Lord. Um, they're, they're not separate parts of his, of his personality, but yet God is perfectly loving and perfectly just at the same time. Um, and, and, you can listen to that one if you want, but that was a, a, a large theological topic that we discussed last week in chapters four through seven. Um, we went from the love of God and then connecting that with his justice. We looked at anger and how we are to handle the emotion of anger while maintaining our walk with God. The, uh, the writer of that Psalm, Psalm chapter four, verse five says, be angry but do not sin. Like, anger is a proper response to a lot of the things that are going on, but there's also a way for us to stay out of sin that comes from anger. So tonight we're going to look at Psalm 8, which is a psalm of praise, and this psalm would be classified as a nature psalm. Remember, there's 10 categories of Psalms. There are five different books that make up the entirety of the book of Psalms, five different volumes, um, and they break up in these different chapters. So we're still in the first volume that deals with the uh, mainly the relationship of man to God, and soon we'll be moving through um, into a different section. But tonight we are in that that section, and this is classified as a nature psalm. But more than that, it is also a messianic psalm, speaking of Jesus Christ who is to come. Um, It's written by David, and he writes as he looks up and over creation. So as his gaze looks towards the heavens um, in the night sky, and as he, he looks over all of creation, he begins to wonder how a God who has created all this, why would God consider me? A God who is so vast and big and powerful, why would he ever consider or spend time thinking about me? He basically comes to the conclusion that I'm a speck floating on a speck in comparison to the vastness of Almighty God. But yet, he's made me in his image and he knows me. And that's where his mind begins to Explode. David asked the question, "What is man?" Right, just like in the movie Zoolander, where he's like, "Who am I?" Right, isn't that the question of humanity? Sorry, you've never seen that that uh, God-forsaken movie, but um, (laughs) there there's a question of of identity within culture. Right, Um, people want to know, like, "Who am I?" I don't even know who I am. I'm still trying to figure out who I am. You cannot divorce identity from your creator. And that is what is going on in culture. They're trying to discover who they are apart from the one who designed them and made them, who gives them their identity. Um, If you look at, uh, there's an identity crisis that's going on. But David asked the question of what is man? And that question is ultimately answered by Jesus Christ. Who the Bible calls the last Adam, through whom we regain our lost dominion. Where the first Adam failed and lost, Christ, the last Adam, has redeemed. So it's a psalm that points to the truth that in God, remarkable is in his remarkable condescension. The fact that God became man and descended in the person of Christ is proof of our dignity as creatures made in the image of God. In fact, Warren Wiersbe, said this, that the grandeur of men and women is found only there, speaking of God, and apart from knowing God, we have no understanding of who we are or what we are to do in this great universe. So there's an identity crisis, and and, and apart from God, we cannot understand first who we are or what we are to do with the world that God has put us in and created for us. That's what the book of Ecclesiastes is about. Ecclesiastes is is a man who has everything that the world has to offer and says, I'm going to devote myself to finding the meaning of life, but I'm going to take God and I'm going to remove him from the equation and I'm going to give myself to money. I'm going to give myself to work, my career. I'm going to give myself fully to sexual desire. I'm going to give myself whatever I want, whenever I want, and hopefully I will find meaning, and satisfaction, and happiness, and he comes to the conclusion at the end that all is vanity. The, the word is, it's all air, or breath, or smoke. It's grasping for the wind, he says, that the meaning of life cannot be found apart from the one who created it, the author of it, right? It's like if, if you would get into the mind of someone who wrote a book, do I give the book meaning, or does the author give the book meaning? The author. Yes, very good. Yes, the author is the one who defines what the book is about. Same when you come to scripture. Do I give scripture meaning or does God give scripture meaning? So does does it matter how this makes me feel? Well, I feel (laughs) that this means it doesn't matter what you feel. It doesn't matter what you think it means. The author intended for it to have a meaning and we must discover what that is. And that's what we seek to do as we come to study God's word. What does God's word say and what does God mean? And we cannot understand our own life or who we are without understanding who God has created us to be. And so verse one, he says, O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth who have set your glory above the heavens. That phrase, O Lord, our Lord, is a confession of three things. Three things. First of all, number one, that there is but one God. He says, O Lord, or Elohim, or or excuse me, the word is Yahweh here, that there is one God. The second thing is that all people are created by this God. And the third one is that the Jewish people are his people and the sheep of his pasture, is is what they're saying. O Lord, Elohim, or, or Yahweh is the word, meaning the existing one. The Hebrew word is, is, it's not Elohim, and it's not, you know what it is? It's Jehovah. <sighs> you know, I write these things down so that I can read them and know what I'm talking about, but sometimes we make mistakes. We're all, we're all, we're all um, what's the word? Failures. There we go. The Hebrew word <laughs> is Jehovah, which means the self-existing eternal one. That's the first Lord. And the second Lord is a different word, and it means master. So the eternal existing one, who is our master, how great or how excellent is your name in all the earth. It tells us there's one God. All people are created by that God. And that the Jewish people are his people or the sheep of his pasture. And we know from scripture that Jehovah was not just a tribal God who belonged only to Israel, but he wanted his name, meaning his character, his reputation, his might, all of that, to be known in all the earth, right? The, The nation of Israel was to take the message of who God was, and they were to be a light there in Israel to all the world of who this God Jehovah was, the one true God who made all things and therefore they were to be that light and representative of it. That's why they call him the Lord or, or the, the self-existing one, meaning he's not created. He has always existed, eternal, who is our master. And then he says that he is above the earth, your name and all the earth, who has set your glory Above the heavens. The psalm begins to describe the Lord's transcendence. Remember, we, as we began the book of Psalms, we, we talked about how this, this book goes from so many different aspects of who God is, where He is ascended on high, but yet He is God who is close in Emmanuel. That, that He talks about God's transcendence, but yet His eminence at the same time. It, it's, a, it's a fascinating thing. It describes the omnipresence of God, that He's everywhere, all at once, all the time. But the psalm begins to describe the Lord's transcendence, that he is high. His glory has been set above the earth's atmosphere. And if you like science, you could probably do a lot more research on the galaxies and and all that stuff. Um, I didn't want to sound like a total idiot, so I didn't do too much research on the science part of this. But when it talks about the, the atmosphere or it talks about high above the heavens, it means that he's above the earth's atmosphere. Now, I did some research. The nearest galaxy, comparable in size to our own, is called the Great Nebula in Andromeda. Yep, located approximately 2 million light years away from us. Now, one light year is 5.8 trillion miles. Okay, that's far, right? So one light year is 5.8 trillion miles. The closest galaxy next to us is 2 million light years away from us. Um, we are 13.4 billion light years away from the oldest galaxy ever found called the GNZ11. Sounds like an alien thing. But that's the cl- 13 billion light years away, meaning that's how far, it's as far as they could see into space, 13.4 billion light years away. And the writer of Psalms says God is above that. He set his glory just above that. As far as we can see, God is above that. He's high, he's lifted up, his glory is throughout the heavens. And then he goes on to say that, but yet God who is ascended on high is yet eminent with us. He's eminent with us. The glory of God descended... Yet God shared with us his presence in the tabernacle and in the temple in the Old Testament, but revealed fully in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. So God, although ascended on high and transcended in the heavens in glory, yet is eminent with us in the person of Jesus Christ, so much so that he would leave Glory, step into humanity, born in a stable, laid in a feeding trough, in a dinky little town that no one cared about for us. It talks about how glorious God is, but yet how close God is, revealed in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. John 1, chapter 14 says, and the word the very word that was spoken to create all that we see, even this Nebula Andromeda thing that God spoke into creation, right? That God, with his own words, even the word of Jesus, as God speaks, Jesus comes forth, who is the co-creator with the Holy Spirit in all that we see, feel, and touch. He says, and the word became flesh, and he dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. When he says this word, the word of God became flesh and he dwelt among us. He was with us. He walked with us. He talked with us. It says that, that he even felt everything that it was to be a human being. Every emotion, every pain, and then some, Christ felt and was with us. He, he descended or condescended to be one of us. Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name what? Emmanuel. Emmanuel, which means God with us. Amen. The God in his condescension said, I want you to call me Emmanuel. I want you to remember that I'm always with you. Although glory on high, he's a God who is ever present in your life. God with us. Psalm 34, 18, it says, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saved the crushed in spirit. This is who we are, the brokenhearted and the crushed in spirit. He says, I'm near to you. I'm close to you. You may be thinking, man, God, you are miles, 13.4 billion light years away. And he says, no, nah, I'm right there with you. In fact, he says, I want to make your heart my home. I want to live inside of you by my spirit. That is the God that we serve. And this is, this is what he's saying. Who, is, who are we? that God would do this for us. 1 Corinthians, last cross-reference in this section. 1 Corinthians six nineteen. it says that your bodies, do you not know that your bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit? Who is in you? Paul makes the reference to the, to the church in Corinth and he says, don't you understand that when you go the places that you go, that the Holy Spirit who lives in you goes wherever you go and you defile the temple of the Holy Spirit? He said, you should know these things. That the very God who created all things, he dwells in us through his Holy Spirit. In fact, the manifest presence of God in this world is seen through the church of Jesus Christ. That is the, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We're on, there on Pentecost where God poured out his spirit. He says, no longer will the Holy Spirit be be." you know, set in one location, restricted to one place, it's going to go into all of Christ's followers, empowering them to serve, empowering them to live, and they're going to go everywhere and anywhere. We're a long way from Israel, aren't we? Why? Because the church was filled with the Holy Spirit, and it continued to extend, and here we are thousands of miles from where it began. The manifest presence of God, the very light of God, the very love of God, the very person of Jesus Christ, his spirit, his power is seen and manifest in his church. That's you and that's me. Crazy, not crazy, truth. Like just, I meant crazy, like, wow, that's gnarly to think about. Um, If your head hasn't exploded yet, it will. Here we go. Here's what he says next. Who have set your with the heaven. Verse two. Wow, we're only in verse two. Out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants. It's always weird to read babes in the Bible. You're like, <laughs> <laughs> babies and nursing infants, you have ordained strength because of your enemies that you may silence the enemy, the avenger, and the avenger. He begins to talk about the, that God is so great. That Jehovah is so great that he can entrust his praise to infants and children and still not be robbed of glory. That Jesus quoted this verse after he cleansed the temple. When he went in and and drove out all the many changers and all that, he he quoted this verse. That the the glory of God is entrusted to children. To children. It's it's an incredible truth. He says, words are, are, Warren Wiersbe, he said, words are not only, they are sounds plus breath like two very weak things. yet words of praise, even from nursing infants and kids playing in the street, can defeat God's enemies. Think about that for a second. Just the breath and sound defeats the enemies of God because of the power of God through praise. And if you think about it even more, the cry of baby Moses ultimately brought Egypt to its knees. The birth of Samuel was used by God to save Israel and bring David to the throne. But it was the birth of Jesus Christ that brought salvation to the world. God has used the weak and the helpless to praise him and help defeat his enemies. The glory of God entrusted to infants and child and children. Man, it's, it's one of the, the craziest verses, I think, in the Bible. It says, unless you become, Jesus said, speaking of children, he says, unless you become like one of these you shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Faith like a child. What? What does that even mean? That kids, when you tell them stuff, they just believe it and they like fully trust, right? When I tell my kids, I'll catch you, jump. They're like, yeah, my dad's going to (laughs) catch. And they just go for it, right? Catch, even when I'm not ready, catch me. When I hear the word catch me, I freak out. You're looking up where, you know. My littlest one, my daughter, my four-year-old, who is, I believe, <laughs> just glorious. She's a wonderful little child, but she is crazy, crazy. All my other kids are just soft and sweet and kind and loving. And then there's her, who is just unbelievable. But but she's one who just believes, like, whatever my dad says will come that the idea that god that jesus was pointing in that unless you believe like these kids that what god's word says is true it's going to be difficult for you to inherit it's going to be difficult for you to believe what god has said but what does david do he then takes his eyes and he looks up verse 3 He says, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you've ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him? David looks at the works of God as a work of a master craftsman with his hands. Although we know that God simply spoke these things to existence, he attributes them to handiwork or the work of his fingers. In this verse, it reminds me of of Romans chapter 1 where it says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. What David confirms is what Paul wrote as well in Romans, that through creation we must be or should be convinced that there is a creator behind it. That everything that we see, there's no way that it just like came into existence. And and what it does, and God in the way that he created the world, and the way that he placed us in it, is so that our eyes would extend past the creation to the creator. That we would look at it and not worship the creation, but that the person who made it. Right When someone does something amazing and beautiful or makes something and and paints something, you don't go over to the brushes and you're like, you did a wonderful job, brush. You speak to the artist, the one who made it, and you're like, you're you're incredible. The things that you can do with those hands and those brushes, wow, because you made it. We don't worship the painting. We don't worship the, the instruments. We worship the creator. And that is the point, David says, when I consider just the heavens, When I look up at the sky at night and I see just these stars everywhere. I see a moon that stays where it's supposed to. I experience a sun that stays there and doesn't burn me or kill me. And all the scientific things that we can go into about big stars and big planets and whatever. Just, nah. There has to be a design behind it. There's an architect behind it. And that's what David is saying. When I consider your heavens, the moon, the stars, which you have ordained, what is man that you're mindful of him? The idea is that through his creation, man discovers the architect behind the design. But Romans tells us that men stop at the creation and worship of everything that man can see, never stopping to think of the one who made it. And that's why God forbid Israel, right? He told them, never make an image of of me. I don't want you to ever try and make something that you think I look like, God said. That's why he came in smoke or he came in, in, in light. God never was like, in, in a way like, I'm a, I'm a cow. Like he never came in some kind of form other than the person of Jesus Christ. He always came in, in light or in smoke. And he's, he told the people, he told them in, in the book of Exodus, do not make any graven image of me. Not because you're not talented, not because you can't, you don't have skill to create, but because anything that you would make would never compare to the glory of God, therefore robbing God of glory. It it would demean him. It would demote him. It would bring him down. And so God says, just don't even do it. Don't do that because of, of who God is. But yet we find that men have worshiped creation from the beginning. Anything in his creation does not compare to the glory of God. Even the most skilled artists or craftsmen can't come close to the beauty and the majesty of God. It's here that David says, how is it then that this God even thinks of me? Not only does he think of you, but his thoughts towards you, the Bible tells us, are even more than the sands of the sea. And not just like thoughts of like you're, I can't stand you, but thoughts of love and good for you. My dad used to tell me all the time when I was a kid, you know, he's like, lick your finger. And I was like, this is this a trick? But he, we're at the beach, and he'd be like, you know, lick your finger and stick it in the sand. And he's like, count every one of those little grains of sand. I'm like, I can't. It's ridiculous. This is this is a horrible trick, father. You know, like you're <laughs> like, one, two. And he tried, and he's like, now you can't even count the ones on your finger. Now look at where we are. And he's like, God thinks about you more than that. Thoughts of good for you. And this is what David, his mind just goes, it just, it explodes. And he goes, why would a God who's made all these things even think about me once? But not only think about me once, but give me breath and life and choice, free will, love. Like, why would God ever do these things? And that's a great question, right? What is man? Who am I? It's here that David begins to think about that. Not only does he think about it, uh, think about us, but his thoughts are, are even more than the sands of the sea. And look, But look, here's the, where he answers it in verse five. Um, he says, and the son of man that you would visit him, for you have made him a little lower than the angels and you have crowned him with glory and with honor. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea shall pa- that pass through the paths of the sea. O oh Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name, and all the earth! This is really—it's um, called a chiasm. It's a type of writing. Even Romeo and Juliet is a chiasm, where it has the same theme that it ends with, and it has a climaxing point somewhere within it. Right. So this is written. The same words that it starts with is the ones that it ends with. The same theme of the excellence of God and the greatness of God, the master, the creator, is how this psalm ends. But he answers the question, why does God pay attention to specks floating on specks? And here's, here's where it is. It's because we were created in his image we are created in his image. We were not created a little higher than the animals, which is what science teaches and science believes, but we are created a little lower than the angels. And here, the word can be translated God. We are, I'm not saying we're gods. Please don't go tell Pastor John that Andrew is telling, Pastor Andrew is telling us all that we're gods and we're gonna have our own planet and you get to populate it. No, that's the wrong, wrong thing. Mormons and things like that. That's not what we believe. (laughs) The word can be translated God, meaning that we've been made a little lower. The Lord crowned Adam and Eve and he gave them dominion over all the creatures, Genesis tells us. That we are co-regents or co of creation with the Lord, the Bible tells us. The angels are the servants of God, but we, the Bible tells us, are kings and one day all who have trusted Christ will be like him. Someone once said that the Trinity, when you look at the Trinity and the relationship of man to the Trinity, that God is our Father, Jesus, our brother, the Holy Spirit, our friend. Because God, the Father, Jesus says in Romans chapter eight that we are heirs and co-heirs with Christ. It doesn't mean that you're like right here. He says, you're with me. We're with together, reigning and ruling in the new kingdom of God. Who are we? I know who I am, and I know who some of you are. Who are you, and who are we that God would even think about us, let alone make space for us in His kingdom, and then give us a place of honor and glory? What in the world? What kind of God is this? This is insanity. But it's all based upon the sacrifice of Jesus Christ upon the cross. It's been made possible that Jesus through his sacrifice that we get to experience co-heirship, sonship, daughtership with Christ. That God's in his ascension descended to our level so that we can ascend with him in glory. Crazy stuff. You weren't expecting this tonight. Maybe you were. Anyway, here's where we kind of wrap things up. First John chapter 3, verse 1 through 3, it says, See how very much our Father loves us, for he calls us his children, and that w- in what we are. But the people who belong to this world don't recognize that we are God's children because they don't know him. Dear friends, we are already God's children, but he has not yet shown us what we will be like when Christ appears. But we do not know that we will be like him, for we will see him as he really is. And all who have this eager expectation will keep themselves pure, just as he is pure. Romans chapter 8, verse 29, it says, For God knew his people in advance and has chosen them to become like his Son, so that his son would be the firstborn among many other brothers and sisters. So if the Bible calls us kings, it calls us priests and kings in First Peter, then why do so many live still like slaves? It's because our first parents sinned and lost their crowns, forfeiting that dominion. There in the garden, when God created this perfect system, This perfect world, man sinned, and it affected the entirety of the system. It'd be like if you're making cookies, you have your batter, and you're like getting it all together. If you're making soup, if you've ever made soup, um, if you've ever made anything, if you're making something, okay, say I'm cooking for you tonight, and I am making you chili, and we're having a big chili cook-off or whatever, and I'm like, I can't wait to extend my gift of making chili to you. And I'm like, I can't wait for these guys to eat it. It's going to be so great. And I sneeze directly into the bowl. What has happened to that bowl is I cannot just simply scoop out that section and be like, it's all good. Although I have, but you know, we never do that to you. Not, Not to you, never to you. But what's happened? The whole system is affected. The whole bowl has been ruined. It's gone. It's trash. It's been affected. I have to start over. What has happened in this world is God created a perfect system. Perfect completely. It was ready. It was given to us. Sin enters the system and affects the entirety of the system all the way down to the beasts of the field into the very genome level of mankind to the where our system breaks down. Our bodies decay and we die. That's what sin has done. So what does God do? He sends his son into the system to make the system brand new through the blood of his his son, Jesus Christ. He recreates it. He remakes it to where sin has been eradicated from it. And that's what he's done in our life. When Christ comes into your life, he has saved you from your sins, past, present, future, simply by faith in Christ. The system has been restored back to him. But we can still sometimes choose and forfeit um, what God has done in our life and live as though we were not. Romans 5, it tells us that it was no longer us ruling and reigning, but now sin reigns and death reigns, right? But Christ has regained the dominion over the earth for us and will one day share it with us when he reigns. And so today, Christ sits upon the throne in heaven, and all things are under his feet. That's what this is speaking of. 1 Corinthians 15, 27, it says, For he has put all things under his feet, but when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. So Christ reigns, and it is no longer sin and death that reigns, but it is Christ and his grace that now reigns. Romans chapter 5. To summarize it, Warren Wiersbe said this, and then we'll, we'll end here. God the Father created us to be kings, but the disobedience of our first parents robbed us of our crowns. God the Son then came to earth and redeemed us to be kings, and today the Holy Spirit of God can empower us to reign in life by one Jesus Christ, our Lord of all. You are a sovereign and not a slave, a victor and not a victim. Our Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. So not only is this psalm about the praise and worship of God, it was pointing to a Messiah who one day all things would be put under his feet, where he would regain, again, dominion that was lost in the garden. And David is looking towards that day and he says, oh man, one day. And so it is yes, it is now, but not yet at the same time. We walk in the newness of life, yes, now, but we're still living in a world affected by sin. And so, like he said, you are not a slave to sin anymore. You are a victor, not a victim. You can have victory over sin in your life because Christ paid it, did it, done. We put our faith in him. We walk in the newness of life that God has given us. Amen? man, who are we that God is mindful of us? Nobody, but aren't you glad that God is mindful of you? Enough to rescue you from your sin.